Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. Tom Tilly with you. In today's episode, we're digging beneath the surface on those wild scenes that came out of Brazil this week. So around 3,000 protesters, supporters of the former president, Jair Bolsonaro, stormed the Brazilian capital. They've refused to accept the election result and are calling for a military intervention. Now, does that sound familiar at all? Yes, well, this went down nearly two years to the day after the US capital riots. So in this episode, we're going to explain what happened in the Brazilian capital on Sunday, and we'll tell you all about the polarizing political battle that sparked this. First, today's headlines with Antoinette Latouf. It's January 11, and Antoinette, it's your first briefing back. Um, you've made a very interesting news resolution over the Christmas break. I have indeed, Tom, and because usually by the second week of January, most people have ditched or abandoned <laughs> their New Year's resolutions. So this year I decided not to make one, and that might sound like a bit of a lazy cop-out, but it's not, because I am such a list-ticking person who is so adamant of doing what they achieve that, like, I'll send myself into an anxiety spiral to ensure that I achieve my New Year's resolution. So this is the first year, New Year kind of new me, like... Less, less kind of crazy, anxious me, hopefully. So I have no New Year's resolutions. Wow, I feel more relaxed just listening to that. <laughs> and look, at least I've stuck to it. <laughs> Finally, a New Year's resolution you can actually achieve. That's great. All right, let's get into today's headlines. The federal government has released an important carbon reduction policy. This is pro-climate pro-industry, pro-competitiveness. That's a lot of pros there by Energy Minister Chris Bowen. So here's how it works. 215 of our biggest emitting miners and manufacturers will have to cut emissions by 5% a year over the next seven years. That's so we can achieve the new 2030 emissions target of a 43% reduction. And companies that don't hit their targets will have to buy carbon credits at a maximum price of $75 a tonne. Yeah, so it's good to get some detail on this policy finally. It's a little bit like a carbon price, a little bit like an emissions trading system. But in reality, what the Labor government have done is revamped a coalition policy called the Safeguard Mechanism. So that means it might not get the sort of political hammering that Julia Gillard's old carbon price or carbon tax did, even though it is similar in some ways. It's going to come into effect in July. Industry has given a lot of support because many of these companies have already made their own carbon reduction pledges. So maybe, Antoinette, this marks the end Mm. of the climate wars. Hopefully, because as you mentioned, there is some overlap with the coalition's policy. And if you're wondering where these reductions can come from, um, it's from things like investing in renewables, improvements in processes or better technology. Although, to be fair, most will probably be offset with carbon credits. And Tom, environment groups are pretty furious that they're saying that industry will effectively be allowed to buy permits rather than be forced to cut emissions. And the Chinese ambassador to Australia has given a very, well, I'm going to just say a very strange press conference. Um, He Mm. toasted a glass of Aussie red wine, which is a good sign for trade, but he made some surprising remarks about Japan. So Ambassador Xiao Qian warned that Japan could pose a military threat to Australia. If we forget history, history might repeat itself. 
So he's talking about what happened in the Second World War, which he says Japan has never apologised for. He says Japan is a greater military threat than China. And this statement came a day after Japan's ambassador told the Australian newspaper that Japan and Australia needed to remain vigilant about China. So he appears to be hitting back to that. Um, The Chinese ambassador also hit out at the AUKUS pact saying that the push for nuclear submarines would be a mistake. Yeah, and I think strange is a good way to describe it. Um, And just a reminder about that AUKUS pact, that's that trilateral security agreement between Australia, the UK and the US. Um, And I think the reason um, the ambassador was holding a glass of red wine is because he was hinting at an end to the three-year block on Australian exports. And that includes things like coal and wine and beef and lobster. And things have been icy for a few years um, between our two nations. And if you've forgotten why, um, it came after former PM Scott Morrison called for an international in- inquiry into the origins of COVID-19. But with a new government, um, it seems they may have a new approach. But I think it's important to note, Tom, that there's no real changes to our policy with and towards China, even though we do have a new government. Do you remember that violent clash on the soccer field in Melbourne before Christmas? It was pretty wild. Uh, the goalkeeper was even hit in the head with a sand bucket. So the Melbourne Victory A-League team has been levelled with a $550,000 fine, and that's the biggest fine in the league's history. And the club could also lose 10 competition points if any of their supporters are found guilty of serious misconduct over the next three seasons. We believe that a strong sanction, both financial and also sporting, is warranted and justified in these circumstances. Football Australia CEO James Johnson. Yeah, so pretty strong action. Seems like a fairly big fine. I mean, not huge, but it was the fans, not the club that were responsible for the violence. Um, This comes after some pretty serious bans for some of those fans. 17 people have been issued bans, some for life, some for several years, and there are criminal proceedings still underway for some of those douchebags who stormed the field. Yeah, I think, Tom, they're trying to put the onus on the fans going, hey, if you really love your club, don't be douches. Mm. Um, don't see them penalised. Um, and diehard fans don't want to see their club lose 10 points. Yeah, I'm not sure like how much logic really runs through the heads of those guys, though. So um, I think banning them completely is possibly the only way to stop them from misbehaving at games. Yeah, and it is not business as usual, even though that derby clash is going to be replayed in April. Um, from that 22nd minute mark, that's when everything was kind of went crazy um, and the pitch was invaded. But Melbourne Victory fans won't be able to attend any away matches in Victoria or interstate during that period. And only valid club members will be able to attend home matches. And Prince Harry's book has finally hit the shelves in Australia today. Um, He's also going to be appearing on Stephen Colbert's Late Show, which sounds like it will be pretty funny. His alarming baldness, more advanced than my own. His famous resemblance to Mummy, which was fading with time, with age. It's pretty cutting. I don't see it as cutting at all. No, because William's so bald, he doesn't need any cutting. Am I right? Am I right, Harry? You know what, Tom? I wouldn't. I wouldn't mind a few laughs around this. I'm so. I'm kind of sick of this story. So I reckon, you know, a pretty, you know, self-deprecating or outright funny and hostile interview. Um, I don't know. I'd welcome that. You're right. Prince Harry is taking himself pretty seriously, isn't he? Oh, 
I think so. Look, you know, and there are some big issues here. The future of the monarchy. Do we need a republic? Institutionalized racism. I get it. I get it. It's, you know, these are serious issues, but, um, I don't know. Bring on the comedic relief. Are you going to read the book? No, Tom, I don't know. I'm not. And anybody who's listening, I reckon there's two other books that are far more interesting and that's your one and mine. (laughs) I'm going to read it. I'm going to read it in full. Really? Yeah. Okay. You tell me the best bits. Well, we talk about it. We talk about it so much. um, And I, in particular, launch off on this topic. So I feel like I, you know, (laughs) in the sort of interest of credibility, I should actually... You need more ammo. Should know what I'm talking about, basically. Fair enough. Well, you can give me a um, one-page dot summary. All right. In just a moment, Katrina Blouse will join me as we look at what's been happening in Brazil. All right, now to our briefing on the political violence in Brazil, Katrina Blouse. Yeah, so Sunday's riots have been called a Brazilian Capitol Hill. That's referring to the pro-Trump supporters who stormed Congress two years and two days earlier. So thousands of hardcore Bolsonaro supporters ransacked Congress, the Supreme Court and the Presidential Palace. They bashed police and demanded a military intervention to overturn what they say is a fraudulent election. Sounds so eerily familiar. Yeah, they were crazy scenes to witness, um, especially given the history in the US two years earlier, as you say. And uh, as we're about to find out, there is just such an interesting backstory to Jair Bolsonaro, the former president, but also the new president, who is a former president as well, Lula da Silva. We'll find out all about him as well with Dr. Catherine Baragwanath. She's a political economy expert at the Australian Catholic University, but she also has a Brazilian partner and keeps a very close eye on Brazilian politics. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. Can you explain more about what we witnessed in Brasilia this week? Who were the protesters? Where did they come from? Why were they wearing the national colours? Uh, so on Sunday, January 8th, uh, thousands of pro-Bolsonaro rioters who were the so-called protesters invaded the buildings of the three branches of government in Brasilia. And this group has taken up the yellow and green Brazilian soccer team t-shirt as kind of their unifying symbol. So this is part of the reason why they're wearing yellow and green and also walking around with the Brazilian flag. Um, They've kind of taken these symbols as their own. And on Sunday, they stormed Congress, the presidential palace and the Supreme Court of Brazil. They caused widespread destruction to public buildings, stole documents, weapons, vandalized works of art and wreaked just general chaos in what's called the Praça dos Três Poderes or the square of the three powers of government in Brasilia. So how violent did these riots get and and how far did they get into these buildings before they were stopped? It was quite violent towards property especially. So we saw lots of destruction of infrastructure and properties, especially in the Supreme Court building. Um, the kind of aftermath seems to show that it's going to have to be completely reformed on the inside. What's surprising is actually how far in they got uh, without kind of military or police intervention. And this is something that raises lots of questions for who was involved in both the organizing and kind of aiding and abetting these riots. This is going to be a big part, I think, of the investigations that are going to follow. 
So do you think the comparison with what happened two years ago on Capitol Hill in Washington is, is quite apt? It does sound very similar. There's lots of parallels between the riots in Brasilia and the January 6th insurrection that we saw in the U.S. Key similarities, of course, are that these are both far-right rioters who follow an ex-president who failed to win re-election. Also, there's quite a strong role of social media in the organization and the kind of uplifting of these groups. And then obviously the date is another parallel. Um, This happened only two years and two days after the January 6th insurrection that we saw in the U.S. We hear a lot about the former president, Jair Bolsonaro, being far right. But what does that actually mean? What did he stand for? Bolsonaro actually ran when he came to the presidency as a sort of outsider, um, which is actually interesting since he was a member of Congress since 1991. So he'd been in politics for a while. While he was a member of Congress, he was not extremely productive kind of in the lawmaking side of things. But where he comes from, he's a retired military member of right-wing groups, very pro-agriculture, very pro-conservative evangelical groups, has been outspokenly anti-Indigenous and anti-environmentalist. Even he himself likes to um, refer to himself as the Trump of the tropics. So he also draws parallels between his persona and Donald Trump in the US. Obviously, the violence in the capital was very dramatic this week, but the contest between Bolsonaro and his political opponent in last year's election was also extremely dramatic. I mean, it sounds like you couldn't get two more different political opponents. You've just described Jair Bolsonaro. On the other end of the spectrum was a, you know, a left-wing candidate, President Luiz Inacio Lula da Silva. He'd been a president previously, so he had a track record to run on. He'd also been in jail as well. So tell us about him. Lula was a member of the Workers' Party um, and a unionist when he came to political power. He was the president of Brazil between 2003 and 2011, and he oversaw two presidential terms where um, we saw quite rapid economic growth, poverty reduction, lots of redistribution, and also important environmental achievements. He was president during the commodity boom, which actually helped quite a bit with a lot of the policies that he was able to implement. But his government was also involved in um, important corruption scandals that included the Mensalong and uh, the Lava Jato or the car wash scandal. And in 2017, he was actually convicted for money laundering and corruption as part of this car wash operation. So, as you said, he spent some time in jail, but later his conviction was an old due to procedural issues with his trial. So uh, the Supreme Court actually ended up annulling his conviction, which meant that he then had a clean slate and was able to run for political office in Brazil again. Wow, it's an incredible story. So dramatic. um, And I I imagine so politically polarizing. What does it do for the stability of Brazil to swing, I guess, from, from someone who was so far right to someone who is so far left? Like you said, there's very intense polarization in Brazil right now. Um, It's a country that's divided. We saw following the election in October, which was the closest election that we've ever seen in Brazilian democratic history, uh, Lula won with less than 51% of the vote. So the difference between them was very slight. And we saw widespread protests and roadblocks 
from pro Bolsonaro um, followers or supporters kind of calling that the election had been stolen, that there had been widespread fraud in the election. So we, we see, again, the parallels with the U.S. where a part of society actually doesn't trust the electoral systems anymore. So this is extremely polarizing for a country that lived through a military dictatorship for 21 years. The way that this is handled in the next few days and the next few months is going to be very important. And so I think that holding accountable the people that were involved with this and then also trying to unify the country after such a dramatic period is going to be very important in the next few months. What about Bolsonaro himself? Did he fan the flames of these protests? I did see that after it happened, he made a statement condemning their action. So it, it seems like he, he didn't go as far as Trump, but how far did he go in encouraging this? Yeah, so I think Bolsonaro's political responsibility is um, very important here. He remained silent and never actually acknowledged his defeat in the 2022 election. And this certainly fanned the flames of his supporters in claiming that the election was stolen and in calling for a military coup. He actually was also the first president in Brazilian democratic history who was not present at the instatement of the new president. And so this was the first time that the presidential sash, which is an important symbol in uh, Brazilian democracy, wasn't handed from a previous president to the next president. Mm. Instead, Lula uh, created the famous photo that we saw now where he walks up the ramp with a group of very diverse Brazilians. But Bolsonaro's absence basically means a lot. It's important symbolically. And I think that all of these aspects help to fuel the fire that um, his supporters believe that this transition of power actually should not be taking place and it's not legitimate. So he he does hold, I would say, political responsibility. It remains to be seen if there's any actual legal responsibility, and that will also be part of the investigations that are going to take place. So where does all this go? Do you think the political polarisation and violence is going to get worse? And what about the lives of ordinary Brazilians? What are they facing at the moment? I think that the political polarisation is quite entrenched. I actually don't think that an event like what we saw on Sunday is going to go very far in changing that. Having said that, an early poll conducted by Quest, which is a polling firm in Brazil, this poll was conducted on Sunday evening, so it was kind of hot off the presses, and it showed that 90% of the people interviewed disagreed with the riots. So it seems that these types of actions are just representing a fervent minority rather than a large proportion of the Brazilian electorate. There could be a kind of short-term rally-around-the-flag sensation after such a violent attack on the powers of the state. And I think that the fact that it was on the three powers, so on Congress, mm. the executive power, and the, the judiciary power as well, which have been kind of at tension lately in Brazil, the fact that it happened on all of the three powers has helped to bring them all together and has given a sense of political unity at the moment that I think can in the short term help appease a little bit of this tension and, and political polarization. For the region as a whole, I mean, Brazil is the biggest democracy in Latin America. Unfortunately, these types of images might inspire similar movements in 
other countries that have high levels of polarization and contested elections and this, these types of impassioned and organized extremist groups. Although we would hope that instead of inspiring these serve as a cautionary tale, um, that these protests won't end up causing real political change and people will mostly just end up in jail. That was Dr. Catherine Baragwanath. Yeah, so this puts the US in a bit of a tricky position with Bolsonaro uh, openly showing on social media that he's just strolling around Florida. He posted a video of himself on Twitter the other day just, you know, cruising the aisles of a Florida supermarket. So Democrats in the US are calling for his visa to be revoked. They say he shouldn't be able to use Florida as a base for destabilising power in Brazil. Interesting too, Tom, how other Latin American leaders have reacted. So Mexico, Chile, Venezuela, even Cuba has condemned the riots. Um, Yeah, so with the rest of Latin America backing the new president, you've got to wonder what's going to happen next. Well, you just hope the new president, Lula da Silva, can unite Brazil, somehow move forward from a really polarising election last year and somehow govern for these people who feel so disaffected and, and bring more unity to a country that's so clearly divided and on the edge of violence. Tomorrow on The Briefing, uh, we're going to look into the sibling rivalry that's dominating headlines, William and Harry, and just look at the dynamics between brothers and why it can get ugly and um, maybe offer some insights on how they could fix it. Listener.